and you're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. Cindy Hunter Morgan is a local author and poet. Her new collection of poems, Far Company, is available this month on Wayne State University Press. And in these poems, Cindy Hunter Morgan is ruminating upon the many ways in which we carry the natural world inside of us as a kind of embedded cartography. There's a deep reverence for ancestors as well as for great poets of the past. Morgan's poems here are awash with a wistful regard of the passing of time and the endurance of memory. And the reading of these pieces evokes a heightened awareness of one's own place in time as well as in nature. Morgan is the author of the 2017 poetry collection Harborless, informed by Great Lakes Shipwrecks, which went on to become a Michigan notable book. She also has two previous chapbooks, which we'll link to in our show notes. As well as having an excellent sensibility for capturing the music of nature and the ineffable emotions that those songs of insects or loons can ignite inside of us when we are out encountering them, Morgan is also a teacher of creative writing. And we do talk quite a bit about all forms of writing in this chat, not just poetry. She's also the co-founder of Filmetry, a festival of film and poetry that finds filmmakers interpreting the works of poets into short films. We talk a lot about the supernatural connection we can only find when we are out amidst nature, which is a lot of what is going on here in Far Company. But we also talk about the ways in which the art forms of music can inform poetry or the ways in which the cinematic arts can be quite similar to poetry. We also talk a great deal about, of course, Far Company, her brand new collection of poems. Here's our chat with Cindy Hunter Morgan. There is some truth that at a certain stage in our life as poets, we appreciate the form for the way it helps us address some pain. But of course, it's not all about pain. It's about mystery. It's about thinking. And it's about joy. Mm -hmm. But for me, I mean, I think we all begin with words. We have words. And I love that about poetry. And I think it's helpful for, for other people to think about poetry and those really basic terms. So this is a shared vocabulary. Everyone has access to poetry because we share the language. Poems are built of words. But I, so I think early on, I had a real appreciation for language. And I think that very early on, I intuited the necessity of compression and intensity. And that distinguishes poetry from other Form, from long form, you know, essays or from prose. I mean, central to the poem is the line break, but not all poems use the line break. We have prose poems that dispense with the line break. So what makes it a poem? Mary Oliver would say it's intent and intensity, and there's more to it than that too. So I appreciate the form for those reasons. And I, I like the limitations of, I'm saying form, and of course there can be free verse poems that we think are not written in form, but poets are always making formal choices, whether we're writing in meter or rhyme or not. We're making formal choices. We're choosing when to turn the line, when to end it, and all kinds of other decisions that involve craft. 
So, you know, I think for me, something happened around sixth grade and I was writing really short poems. And I know that I, that through this short form, I was able to address big ideas, things that might've felt sort of really hard to wrestle at that age in particular in any other kind of genre, but they felt like I had a way into thinking about those big ideas. I think poetry can help with that early on. And, and, and I think a poet's job is to acknowledge complexity. And I think that sometimes if we try to write too much, it becomes harder and harder to honor the complexity. So I'm not sure I answered your question at all. No, no, you got there. You got there. Now we need to go to your sixth grade self and and then wonder further what it was about the maybe the intensity uh, or or about the visceral nature of of this form of expression that that drew you to it uh, because it can be so so visceral. One line can sometimes carry as much import as maybe a full literary chapter. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, I know exactly what and you mean. must have. You must have realized that early on in your youth, that something turned on for you there. Yeah, every every word counts. Yeah, I think I like the portability of it too. Yeah. You know, you can work on something and carry it in your pocket and pull it out in the middle of the day, and scribble some notes about it. Which begs the question: How often <laughs> do you write outside with far company, especially, which seems so alive with the outdoors? Oh, thank you. Um, and it's okay if the answer is no, but like that is that is my in there that this this book is so alive and there's a lot of sensory intensity in here and sound um, mm-hmm. and quiet moments, but also like loud moments. Uh, there is there are coyotes singing and there are kettles being shrill and there's loons and it's all there and you're you're giving it all to us so tell me about these poems (laughs) i would say that poems for me sometimes begin outside and maybe they begin with an image or a line on a walk when my head's floating free but for me to really work on a poem i need i need paper and pencil and generally a table Mm -hmm. um and that's that is how i begin i begin in long form on paper and then at a certain stage of I think the poem is working, I move it over to the computer. And I don't tend to work with the computer outside. Just, you know, we all have that like screen issue with the light. Yeah. So if I if I'm working on a poem outside, it's probably on paper. And I do think that walking is a great time for me to think about poems. My head really floats free when I walk, and it floats free in a different way than when I run. And I'm not saying it doesn't float free when I run, but I don't. I can't really, it doesn't work to think about a poem when I'm running. So the outdoors and the time outdoors, it, it really is important to me, both in like a, in a where poems begin kind of way. And then in a, in a, what am I thinking about kind of way as, you know, this book is very much informed by the natural world and, and my experiences in it. And I do think this is a little bit related to your question. So Larry Levis, a, a poet I admire very much. He, he grew up in California, a big farm, and he spent a lot of time, he spent days and days on, on a tractor and <laughs> working. And he, he loved that time. And it was an important time for him 
he would memorize poems. He'd think about the poems when he was on the tractor. He'd think about his own work. And he said once um, that he had the kind of solitude the world usually only allows to kings and criminals. And I, I love that. And I really do think that our, our time alone is essential to us as, as writers, as thinkers, as poets, and really as human beings. Yeah. And I think a lot of people tend to forget that importance, or maybe a lot of people have never truly experienced the pleasure of that time to understand its importance. But for me, you know, when I was a girl growing up, working and playing in the orchard at my grandparents, um, you know, I had time to roam the orchard, time to roam the pasture. And those were all days and years when, when poems were kind of steeping in me, you know, like a pot of tea. You mentioned just the suggestion of how time was spent. Maybe that time is spent on a tractor or maybe it's spent in an apple orchard. This book really made me appreciate how memory echoes uh, and then also a lot of ruminations on how we do spend our time, how the way in which we did spend our time affects us later, how time travels through us, uh, and then just all of these wistful ruminations. I mean, uh, there's uh, some things in like, I believe Nocturne is one of my favorite poems. I believe that's the one where you're going on about August. There is a lot about that 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 interesting time period when summer is fading and fall is coming, uh, which was a, an area of temporal time that Ray Bradbury would wax poetic about often. But um, talk about Talk about, I guess, just just memories and time. You do write still beautifully about your grandmother here and how there's almost this, not quite spectral, but like just this lingering shadow of a memory of her. Um, and so just memory and time really stuck out to me. Can you just talk about that and how it, it is a kind of a thread throughout these poems in this collection? Sure. Well, you mentioned Nocturne and I do. Every year I get kind of ridiculously wistful <laughs> and I'm aware of it and it, and I'm aware of the kind of ridiculous nature of my emotional response to those first crickets and Katie did that I hear at night. And then what I what I need to remember this year is that there's a lot of summer left when I start hearing those. I need to really there because they're really I mean there are wonderful September nights, October early October evenings when those night sounds, those night insects are still singing. Mm -hmm. And then there comes a time when I have to shut the windows and I miss their sounds because I've come to associate them with a long lingering summer. So my relationship with those night insects is, is very complicated. For time and memory, you are, you are right. Time and memory, um, I'm really thinking a lot about both of those in this book. And, and I'm really thinking a lot about my grandparents, my grandma in particular. We were kind of co-conspirators and I miss her still, but I've come to feel that the way I miss her is a kind of beautiful ache. I wouldn't, now I don't ever want to stop missing her because that would be true absence. And missing her is a kind of presence still. I still feel her presence in those moments of missing. And so when I tap into that for some of the poems I'm writing, when I'm working on those poems, it's time spent with her 
again, we are alive together during that time when I'm writing the poem. And it's, it's really lovely, really lovely. Um, I think what I was what I was possibly quoting from when I when you wrote so beautifully, especially about your grandmother, um, I think is in sort of the title poem. I think it is in Far Company, especially. Um, but that resonates with me about um, maybe I'm misinterpreting, but maybe that is part of the that implication of being with you but distant. That is the Far Company. Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways of thinking about Far Company, and I think we all have our own versions of Far Company. But the, the notion, sort of conceptual notion of far company is really important to me. But I think it's true. It's important, I think, probably for many of us. For me, far company is, um, yeah, my grandma is certainly far company. She's company, but she's far. And, um, and in that poem, I, I both feel close to her and far away from her. And the simultaneity of, of that feeling is a kind of contradiction, and yet it's not. I think anybody who misses somebody can understand the how absence and presence get braided mm-hmm. when we miss somebody. Mm-hmm. Part of what makes the miss pierce so deeply or ache so long is that we do feel them. Mm-hmm. We can still feel them. And then part of what contributes to the ache is, is the reality, the understanding that there's there's some barrier there right there's some impediment when i think about even that word impediment i think i think of shakespeare's sonnets which sometimes i find them too glib but (laughs) but in mostly in most all of them the thing that the you know the sonnet hinges on is some impediment right some conflict and and that's often at the core of of any poem and I, I don't know what it is. This, and maybe it's better even not to put it into words. But there is, these are thoughts and meditations that we all could otherwise potentially access, uh, but we certainly won't do it inside of a an office with fluorescent lighting. I think there is something about the being outside and the hearing the cicadas and seeing the stars, and maybe it is the music uh the musicality of being outside uh just maybe activates something in our mind it opens something up and it, and it makes us it makes us ruminative uh we certainly won't do it in our nine to five when we're hopped up on coffee in the classroom or in a in a in a day job but man there's just something so rewarding uh about being outside <laughs> which there is obviously there really is it, it activates something in us. And I think that's what your poems, anyone who picks up a poem, it, they don't have to, they don't have to imagine that you are sitting by a creek with a parchment paper, but these are things that activate from the walk that you talked about and then come inside and write. But it was the, it was the confrontation with nature. Uh, it's amazing. Well, th- thank you. What I'm hearing you say is that, you know, there's something you experience in that in the reading of the poem or um, that i that i sense that you were there i can i can i can hear your feet walking through the grass as you write i don't know how that's something well, thank you and, and maybe probably image is is central to that yeah. um I, I do think image is the use of image is so important in most poems um and that's how we access the world is through 
image, you know, no, no ideas, but in things and in things we find our images. Um, my things just happen to be most frequently of the natural world. But, but that experience of reading is, I'm glad to hear you're having that experience. I really do feel like when we read a poem, if the poem is working as it should, a reader should feel slightly altered at the end of it, changed in some way. In the same way we want to be slightly altered or changed by, by the experience of, of, of meeting somebody. You know, when we part from that person, we want to walk away feeling something. It's what poems should do. It's what people should do. We should be we should be changed in some way. They should they should yeah. There's they should stick with you the same way that I, in late August, I'm going to be thinking of Nocturne, or when some more constellations come out, I'll start thinking of Cosmic Memory. I'll think of these sitting down with your book at these points of the year and these seasonal changes. So uh, I was reading the back of your book. I actually learned a word from uh, author Stephen Kramer who just described your book as uh, sidereal, which is amazing, which is apparently uh, built of a reverence for the stars and and constellations. And heck yes. Um, can you comment a little bit further on the power of poetry? There's, uh, and maybe you can help me as I, as I think out loud here, but isn't there something about how poetry can be sometimes adaptive, multi-applicable, but also responsive. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, in, in, the, in the ways in which, you know, I believe there was a photo exhibit where your poetry was accompanying these images, or maybe there's something like, is it filmetry where film and poetry meet? And, I, and we certainly don't see that in long form fiction. <laughs> We're not going to be, uh, but it's, I think it's so cool how, how poems can this isn't the right word for it, maybe complement another art form, but maybe fuse with it in a way, I guess. But uh, that's been, can you talk about that? Well, I think that different different genres, different art forms um, intersect yeah. in important ways. And one art form can help us enter another art form. Well, we have things, you know, as poets, I can learn things from cinematographers. I mean, for example, you know, cinematographers are always thinking about what where their camera is pointed what's it looking at where what does the viewer see and i think we can learn something from cinematography as poets we we need to think about where am i pointing the camera in this poem what am i asking my reader to notice or look at and i think that um that watching movies can help us think about how to build poems in some strange ways too if we think about well if i think about like so in latin stanza means room and if we think about if a, if a poem not all poems are you know um some poems are sort of st single stanza poems but if we think about a poem that has m multiple stanzas and we, then we think about that translation to latin and we think about moving from room to room well then there becomes a kind of cinematography built into that you're leading your reader from room to room so you better make sure that they're that there's a new room in that new stanza in some way. There needs to be a reason why you're breaking that stanza. And filmetry, you mentioned filmetry, that um, has been a really meaningful collaboration. It began a few years ago. My, I co-founded that with Peter Johnston, who teaches film studies at MSU. And 
first year, what we did is we, we paired up filmmakers and poets and we paired them up. We kind of matched them up and then poets could submit five poems to their filmmaker and the filmmaker would choose one of them to adapt and, and make into a short film. So it, I think it was interesting for poets to see what happened. You know, their, their work was transformed, hopefully, right? Hopefully it wasn't just like this linear, pure linear interpretation. So the filmmakers were making new choices. And in some ways, I think that it helped poets understand their own poems better to turn them over to filmmakers and see what happened with them. So, yeah, I think there are some beautiful intersections between art forms. I think we have things to learn from different art forms. And well, you mentioned something about long form and I don't know, maybe I disagree. Like, like if you think about novels, there are filmmakers who adapt novels and turn them into films. And, and then, you know, one of the big differences, of course, is that you know, a lot of novels will have that kind of narrator's voice inside, built into the structure of the novel. It's the author, right? And the author can share information in a novel that can't be shared in the same way on film. So on the film, on the screen, you have to hear everything or see everything. Mm-hmm. That's how all your information is delivered. Mm-hmm. Every now and then you have that sort of background commentary voiceover, but that's not uncommon. So, so that presents other challenges and, and it can be useful probably for writers to think about like, how do I think like a screenwriter? How do I eliminate some of this exposition and write more directly? And I think that's an important part of poetry too, is, is, is learning how to, and then thinking more and more deeply about how to, how to, eliminate exposition. And so, you know, and that's an old concept. It was, it's built into the ballad form, which began, you know, in medias res in the middle, but it's part of the compression and intensity we were talking about earlier about poetry. Yeah. I always just wrongly or rightly interpret, you know, poetry as having a heightened profundity one compared to long form. And I think that it, that, that there's something to that when it is paired to the bone as far as exposition exposition goes. And we're talking about a 350 page novel. So that might be the reason that I will reach for a, a Walt Whitman quote, because it is stuck with me rather than Steinbeck, because I just can't remember all of East of Eden. Um, or maybe it's in the same way that most people, whenever they quote literature, it's always just the first line because <laughs> that's neither here nor there though. But I think it's such an interesting experiment to have the language of film and poetry talk to each other. Um, I think that's wonderful. But I think it it's one of the mo- it's one of the many beautiful things about poetry that it has that multi applicability. Um, yeah. And then there was something else that you uh, you have a, a venture into the realm of murder ballads. So it just showed me that once again you have this other extensive appreciation for another art form, which is music. And I feel like that is just one of the many reasons that your poetry feels so alive is because you have you have your your feet in so many different artistic realms here not not even just academia too and teaching so uh i think there's a lot of ways in which you encounter the beauty of the written word i think it all feeds me too yeah and i think that it can okay that's another like it can be useful to think about to think like a musician when we're thinking about whether a poem is working or not. If we think about just basic sort of chord theory, and then you take basic chord theory and you you sort of 
apply it to your thinking about a poem to say, well, does my poem have basic chord theory? Like, okay, there's the one chord, there's the four chord. All right, I got the one and I got the four, but there's something missing in this poem. What is it? It's the, it's the fifth chord, right? It's five. So you, and you need one, four, five to make that, to make that poem really work. And so sometimes thinking, using the vocabulary, the language, and even the concepts of another art form are, are helpful. Yeah, and we were just talking about our company and we were talking about the uh, ridiculous levels of wistfulness. There's <laughs> one other word and I can't avoid it. And I feel like it is not doing the work I wanted to do. But the other word I just kept coming back to with a lot of your poetry is that it was very comforting to me in some way, you know, and I'm at a, you know, I'm at a point where I'm, I'm getting older and every once in a while existential dread can creep in and, you know, I'm getting wistful for my own memories. Um, there's something about your wording here that, that is a very deep exhale for me. And I wish I had a more articulate way of describing that, but it, so a lot of this was, was comforting me, even if it is addressing sadness or is in a wistful tone at times, uh, there's something comforting going on here. Well, I think, I mean, we feel that in, in music, we feel that in songs, um, you know, and there's been lots, I think, written about it too. Just why, why is there comfort in catharsis, right? Like what's the science behind that? Why, why are we comforted by sad songs? Yeah. And, and there's something similar when we read poetry, but you know, I think sometimes poetry comes, it's born from a kind of loneliness and the, so the 14th century Sufi poet Hafiz said, uh, don't surrender your loneliness too quickly. And I love that. I really love that because we are sometimes just too quick to dispense with our loneliness and we should use it. We should think about it. We should, we should let it season us. And, and if we let go of it too quickly, it's probably not healthy, but then we're missing out on some kind of art that can come from it too. Yeah. There's something about speaking its name, uh, addressing the tension, addressing the sadness, not so much to have power over it, but to take away your anxiety of it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's something about, we always talk about burying those sort of things deep down and don't let it come up. Uh, there's something about letting it come up, letting it be in the room with you and addressing it that takes away the tension. And you've yeah. done it in your poetry. Yeah. And yet you want to keep the tension too, because sure. otherwise you won't feel the release of it. And right. that's part of music too, tension and release, tension and release. So you don't want to eliminate the tension in a poem um, or resolve it too quickly or easily. Keats said that only, there's only one thing necessary to write good poems, and that's a, a feeling for light and shade. If you have a poem that's all light, you probably have a poem that um, isn't working. <laughs> or, yeah. <laughs> well. Cindy Morgan Hunter, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It's been a delight to talk to you. It's been a pleasure, yes. Jeff. Thank you very much for inviting me. And that was our chat with Cindy Hunter Morgan talking about her latest Far Company. She's also the author of Harborless, which was a 2018 Michigan notable book. 
And yes, the word was sidereal, if I'm even pronouncing that correctly. Earthly and sidereal. The blurb for this book by Stephen Kramer. As, I, as you could hear in this episode, I recommend it as well. Thank you so much to Cindy Hunter Morgan for joining us on A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is by a local musician, John Duffy. If you want to support this podcast, you could go to ferndalefriends.org or you could rate, review, subscribe, or follow us, leave a comment, tell your friend about it. And if you especially liked this episode, please share it to social media. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening.